Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and today our guest is Alex Olson. Alex is a commercial real estate agent based in Kansas City. He is also a multifamily investor and has nearly 15 years of experience in the financial services and tech industry. Thank you for joining me on the show today, Alex. How are you doing? Oh, it's great to be alive. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and if you could share a little bit more on how you got started in real estate, um, I would really appreciate that. Yeah, so my background, my formal education was in online marketing and design. And so I really had more of a graphic web design degree along with some economics. And so I started off doing design and marketing and for online and then got into financial technology and and like that, but I missed the physical nature of the world. I mean, you're behind a computer desk all day. You might talk to people and carry on a conversation, but I felt a lack of being able to interact with the physical world. And it kind of all clicked when I started building, my wife and I built a house on on a lake and I managed a lot of that process. And back when I was a kid, I, you know, oh man, I really want to be an architect. Well, you have to be smart to do that. And I'm not very smart. So I kind of dodged that. And But when I was building our dream house, I fell in love with real estate. You know, we had done well on the cabin that we purchased and the land value that was there after we had tore that down and built a house. And so I kind of felt like, okay, maybe I know something about real estate. And we were lucky enough to when we completed the house that we had a large amount of equity in the house after it was completed. And so we took that equity and I said... I just think that I don't want to work for a W-2 job my whole life and have just rely on my 401k. And so how can I build wealth without, you know, with some more control? And so real estate clicked. I started doing research, you know, bigger pockets, listening to podcasts, reading all the investment books that were out there. And then I read a book by Sam Zell called Am I Being Too Subtle? And Sam Zell is a billionaire real estate investor, and he started investing just out of college. And he talked a lot about how to not look at deals, not to do them, but look at deals. How do you get deals done? So anyway, long story short is that's how I got started in it, is I took the home equity line of credit that I developed from the house that we built. And then I purchased five or six buildings in the Kansas City urban core area and really just kind of liked all aspects of it. I liked managing it, doing some of the fix up of it. And and that that kind of got me back to the physical nature I was, I guess I was looking for. Awesome. And so what is your focus right now? So right now I still invest in in multifamily investments, but my focus is only on stuff that I can really own almost hundred percent myself. So I don't do much syndication on that side. But that's really only two to 5% of my time is spent on my investments. The other 95% is I'm a real estate broker, commercial broker. And so I help 
out-of-state investors who want to invest in Kansas City and develop, you know, a, a boots on the ground, make sure that we can find the right property for them based on the returns they're looking for. And I really enjoy doing a lot of transactions. So that's been my focus as of recently. Okay. And how long have you been doing that for, you said? I've been doing anything related to real estate for about three years now. Okay, great. So you have a lot of experience in that area. I'm trying my best. I just, as you know, we've got a trial and error sometimes. You can read all the books you want, but it doesn't mean that you're going to actually follow through with what you're reading. And taking that first step is hard for everybody, I think. But once you get past it, then you really, really kind of know if this is a thing for you or not pretty quick. Right. And so when did you actually decide that you're going to transition full-time from your W-2 into full-time real estate? I had made that decision maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And I didn't have my real estate license at the time. But one of the things I learned is you've got to have good mentors. And your mentor, mentor is more of a loose term. It's more of a role model or a friend who has more experience than me. And so there was a gentleman here in the area. I actually tried to buy his house from him and turn it into an Airbnb house because it was a great location, a nice little house. It would have done well in the Airbnb world. And I kept calling him and calling him. He wouldn't answer at first. And then he finally answered and said, what do you want from me? So I finally convinced him to have a meeting with me. He never sold me his house, which is fine, probably a good thing, but we became kind of friends. He's maybe 20 years older than I am, maybe 15. And I met with him and said, man, I don't think that my career in this financial technology sector is really for me much longer. You know, how can I get out of that and into real estate full time? He said, why don't you go out and get your license? And I said, I don't want to show houses. And he said, no, you don't have to show houses. You can focus on a niche in commercial real estate and use your financial background and your investment background to really make a presence for yourself in multifamily investing. And so I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. So I went out and took the, did the studying of the test, took the test, got all that done in a month. During that time, I interviewed basically every brokerage firm in town I say I interviewed them. I mean, really, they're probably kind of interviewing me, but I want to make sure I found a good fit. So I found a good fit here at Clemens Real Estate. And it's just been one of those things where you get into it, you like it or you don't. Either you like doing cold calls and talking to new people or you don't. And thankfully, I so far like it. So as a broker and for someone who's trying to get into the market, um, what are some I guess, do's and don'ts of establishing that relationship with a broker. And what are some tips that you suggest? Yeah, the number one, there's, say number one, there's really kind of two or three tips. But the biggest ones are, if you're coming into a market, whether you live there or you don't, the best way to get a broker's attention, or really anybody, even a property owner, is to have a pre-approval letter from a financial institution. Because what this does is it shows the broker or property owner that you're serious. You're not just a tire kicker. You took the time. I always say, like, basically, you're giving the broker say, hey, look, I'm going to give you some of my time. As in, I went out and got a pre-approval letter. Now, Mr. Broker or Mrs. Broker, I want you to give me some of your time and help me find a property that fits what I need. 
And so having that pre-approval letter for me is a great first start. And then the second thing is to have expectations with the broker that if you like them and you think that they're going to be a hard enough worker for you, that you build a relationship with them and that you select that broker to really help you find the deals. Because if the broker sniffs and knows that you're calling everybody all over town and it gets back to us pretty quickly, sure, we're we're definitely going to help you out if we've got something that's going to fit, but we're not going to put as much time and effort into it as if someone comes and says, hey, you know, Alex, I heard a lot of great things about you and I really want to use you as my broker. Here's my pre-approval letter. Let's go out and find some properties. That to me says you're ready to go and let's go out and find some properties together. So for the pre-approval letter, do you suggest that it would be the initial contact with the broker or is it after a conversation getting to know the broker first? Yeah, either or is fine. And I totally understand too, you know, most of the time I'm helping people really identify a lender that's going to get them financing because just like in the residential real estate world, there are lenders that promise amazing rates and fast closes, but you don't really know if they can perform on that, unless you have either done it before or somehow have a referral on it. And so I've used a couple different lenders here in Kansas City that I know can get a transaction closed. That's the number one thing. Let's put aside the best rate that you can get. And let's look at, can I actually close this transaction? Because if I can't, and I've got to push back due diligence, that probably costs me more money because I'm going to have to put some more hard money down on the deal before the seller is going to agree to it. And then number two, if I can't get it closed and then I spend all this money on a probably a commercial appraisal and inspection. And so I spent money on this thing and I've got this lender that can't get it done. And so I've had several lenders not come through for me and that burns me. And so now I only use a certain few that I can recommend. And so I can help build out that team as a customer needs it. But if you've already got a lender, that's fine too. And how about when somebody's new to the market and then they're making that initial contact or they don't have the track record, how do they stand out to the brokers or how do they make themselves attractive to the broker? Yeah, I think a lot of newer investors struggle with that. And I really do think trying to make connections with the broker, most of us, in the real estate world or on LinkedIn or Facebook or some social media platform. And we have some kind of presence. Some of them may not be on there every day like I am, but they're definitely on there at some point. And so continuing to try to get those different touch points in front of them. So you've got, and usually there's a phone number on the website, right? So you've got a phone number that leads to the office phone. You've got probably an email. You've got LinkedIn and, and or Facebook that you can try to get your foot in the door with the broker. And so after you make that contact with a broker and you establish that relationship or that initial contact, what kind of like follow-up do you suggest afterwards, like to touch base with them as you're evaluating the deals and then not overwhelming the brokers with questions and being like pesky? Yeah, there is some pesky buyers out there, which is fine. I think the approach that an ideal buyer takes is, Hopefully the broker, myself, I'll give an example is that we've talked about it. I kind of know what I think he might be looking for from an investment standpoint. And then here is maybe two or three properties that might not be a perfect fit, but let's start with those. And you, Mr. and Mrs. Buyer, 
evaluate these on your terms because I'm just the broker and I just kind of generically evaluate it and come back to me with, hey, look, this is what I think about this property you sent me. It's too high a price or, you know, just questions about it. And then we can set up and talk through that whole investment and see where the differences are. And then it's my job to help fill in the gaps and find better properties for them. But it's not just a, hey, Mr. Broker or Mrs. Broker Alex, this property sucks and is trash. That doesn't help me. It might be terrible for you, which is fine, but I can't go out and find a better one because I don't know how to answer that question. And especially during now with COVID and trying to build up the relationships with the brokers, you're not really able to meet person to person. What are some ways that you suggest to continue to build up the relationship outside of meeting face to face with them? Well, a good way is there are a lot of brokers who do a lot of Zoom meetings, kind of like this, where you can make a face, put a face with the name, I guess they say. And so that's an option. There's also virtual meetups that happen that are sometimes hard to get on those lists and invites. So that can be an option. Interacting with people on LinkedIn posts helps continue to get that attention and to build confidence in the broker. And, you know, it goes both ways. It's not all about the broker, not all about the buyer. You've got to find a a perfect balance there. And then sometimes there are opportunities to meet exterior, you know, meet on the outside. Hey, let's go tour this property on the outside. Maybe we'll both drive by it together and we can pull off in the parking lot and talk afterwards. So just being creative about it and try not to let that be an excuse, I think is important. And is there any advice that you would give about things that you shouldn't be doing when working with a broker? That's a tough question because everybody has such different personality, which is understandable. But the worst thing that a buyer can do is really... Well, two of the worst things, but the first worst thing is really expecting the broker to do all the work. I love helping people get investment properties bought and sold, but I can't make the banking decisions for you. I can't tell you this bank is definitely going to close on it. There's certain things that I just can't do. I can guide you. I mean, you as the investor are the hero. I'm just here to fill in all the gaps and pieces to make sure that we get this thing closed off. And so you should come in expecting to utilize your team. I'm the kind of the glue that brings everything together. And then you've got a property manager. I'm going to help you select a lender, insurance agent, title company is there. Use all the right pieces of your team to make the best educated guess. And if you want to ask me also my opinion, I'm also happy to provide it. But at the end of the day, you as the investor have to make the decision on it. So in your opinion, as you're sending deals to potential buyers um, and investors, and then they're evaluating the deals, they're giving you the feedback. Is there like a certain limit of deals that the investor or buyer would have to say no before you reduce the time being spent with them? Or if they're not closing a deal, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't think that there's really much of a limit. I mean, usually... I'm just being candid. People fall off on their own, you know, get tired of me sending them similar deals or they just don't want to put in the work. That's usually what it is half the time is, gosh, Alex or Joe or John, whoever, you know, they're just not sending me the right deals. Well, in that case, maybe the market's not correct for them. Maybe the asset class isn't correct. You know, there's certain things that might not be the right fit right now. And 
oftentimes they'll fall off. But, you know, I've had people, matter of fact, my, one of my ro- most recent transactions here where it was in February, I was talking about buying property in Kansas City. And he said, no, now is not the right time. It's too expensive. And then October rolls around. And out of the blue, he calls me and says, hey, let's uh, let's do a deal. And I shot him over some properties that I thought he might be interested in and we got him closed out. So there's really not a whole lot of uh, downside to continuing to talk to a broker. Now, you might go off and find another market to look at or another broker that you're talking to because you don't think that the current broker you're talking to is doing a good enough job. And that's fine, too. Like I said, I'm here to help and provide you with all the tools. I can't make the market be any better or worse. I can only just kind of help you tell you what the market is right now. And so being a broker and helping the investors find the different properties, what's your favorite part about working with them? My favorite part of working with an investor is when we get to a point where we're we're working on a contract, even a letter of intent. I like that because it tells me that everybody's kind of committed, even if we don't get the deal. And I like that aspect of, hey, look, I've got a interested buyer in an interested property. And that to me is like, okay, this thing might change hands. I'm excited about it. And oftentimes I get excited about what a buyer is going to do to it. I had a property and it's closed already and it needs some work. And we've talked about the, you know, what the upgrades are he's going to do to it. And so I'm excited to see what some of these properties turn out to be after a short period of time. And I'll often follow up with them three, six months later saying, hey, look, how have you been able to push rents? based on some of the things you talked about doing. And that that's exciting to me as well. And how's the market in Kansas City? Do you see the trend going, being more positive, especially during COVID times? In your opinion, like what's your outlook on the market right now? Yeah, so Kansas City with COVID, there was probably maybe a period of a dead period. Prices didn't really decrease, but they paused, I guess, so to speak, because no one was doing deals from like a lot of stuff in May through July, August. There wasn't a ton of activity on the buy side. And however, prices never dropped. There's no what people call COVID prices in Kansas City. And I think a lot of that is driven by the recession-resistant market of Kansas City. We don't have one single segment, workforce segment that dominates. We have a lot of healthcare. We've got three or four major hospitals. So there's a lot of healthcare workers. We have some tech, tech sector that focuses a lot on animal health and entrepreneurship as well because of the presence of the Kauffman Center and the Million Cups that we have that just is an entrepreneur type of organization. We have the most per capita rail line in the United States, even more than Chicago, just because we have fewer people. But that rail line brings in all sorts of e-commerce, right? So you've got shipping going in and out all the time via rail. We also have, believe it or not, a very large presence in the airport that does a lot of shipping, just you know, Amazon packages in and out, all that kind of stuff. It's very diversified. And so, yes, you know, just like everywhere else, we had high unemployment. But it doesn't impact us as much. And then you layer on top of that all the investment that these same industries are doing, such as warehousing, just physical warehousing and data warehousing. Google's committed to, I don't know how many millions of dollars in data warehousing development. And then we also have Amazon and and Walmart both putting large warehousing facilities on both sides of the state line in Kansas City. We've got the streetcar extension, which, you know, 
four years ago, we had this the first line of the streetcar launch, which is only a mile long, which is we've seen tremendous growth on both sides of that uh, line. And then now we're adding an additional two to three miles to that, which is almost like a tourist thing. But for Kansas Cityans, it's a lot of transportation because the streetcar is free. So you can take that up and down to get to downtown, all the way down to the Country Club Plaza, all the way down to the University of Missouri, Kansas City, which is obviously the largest institution in the metro from an education standpoint. So all that kind of helps the city maintain its neutrality to a lack of labor force. So, or sorry, for a lack of unemployment. So we have a lot, we have very high employment because of all that. And investors like it because the market still cash flows. And then do you still see it increasing in the next over the next six months and the next over the next year? I do. Yeah, I really do. Probably it's not exclusive to Kansas City, but probably like a lot of markets. You know, we were all on pause through much of 2020 and with the vaccine and hopefully that continues to go really well. I think there's going to be a lot of people, especially as the interest rates from the Federal Reserve stay at zero. Money is basically free. And so to build things, let's say in two years when interest rates double or triple, because let's say they go from zero to three, money becomes a lot more expensive. And as investors see that and city planners understand and realize that, they should take advantage of the free money now to develop all parts of the city, whether it's office, retail, jobs. I mean, you got to do it the right way. But investing now will really help solidify the future of the city. And I think our leaders are really onto that. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah. so, Alex, what's next for you? Next for me is we're going to continue to take the buyer's representation success system to the next level. And really what that is, it's, it's by BRSS. And so we have a lot of out-of-state investors that have 1031 exchange deadlines. And we've done a really good job of that in 2020. But we're looking to see how we can modify that for 2021 to really provide stability and confidence with that 1031 exchange investor that we can find properties for them. Because I think that's a lot of people's biggest fears if you have a 1031 exchange is, you know, I don't want to pay Uncle Sam all this money, especially if it's an inherited property. Your basis on that is, is crazy high. And so anyway, just kind of evolving that system to capture a wider net of out-of-state investors and get them into Kansas City. That makes sense. And so can you talk a little bit more about the 1031 briefly? Yeah. So 1031 exchange is uh, common in the real estate world to where you have a property that you have sold or are selling an investment property. And now then to avoid paying any kind of profit you've made on that sale, you can invest that, the entire proceeds, so to speak, into another property that's like kind, basically any kind of real estate, including farmland, believe it or not. And so with that 1031 exchange, it's an IRS federal statute. So it's not a local thing. It's, it's a federal statute. You only have 45 days to identify up to three properties to with a qualified intermediary. So there's some steps you have to go through to make sure that you don't put your proceeds, your taxable capital gains at risk. But then a lot of people are like, well, man, I, I maybe have a property here in New York or, or California that maybe wasn't cash flowing that great, but my grandparents owned it or whoever. And now that I got to find something that's maybe going to do a little bit better for me. And so they look to the Midwest market to potentially invest that same amount of money into 
this market here and, you know, avoid paying anything to Uncle Sam. And that's something that you're, you as a broker are specialized in, in the 1031 exchange. Yeah. So there's what's called a qualified intermediary, which is a, a more of a financial institution. I'm not one of those, but I am an agent that understands the 1031 process really well. And that's most of my business. Probably 75% of my business is helping 1031 exchange clients take the stress out of it because you only have so many days to get that figured out. And then also make sure that it closes because even if you've identified these three properties, you still have to put them under contract and get them closed. If you don't, then you still got to pay your Uncle Sam money. So walking the client through that, providing them confidence that I'm doing everything I can to make sure this thing gets closed and give you just a short example. Sometimes you want to come into a transaction and say, hey, look, I need $50,000 off this $100,000 contract because we're buying a duplex or whatever. Well, you're probably going to lose that deal because the seller is going to tell you to go pound sand. And if this is your 1031 exchange property that you've identified, you don't want to put that at risk. So I'm here to help make sure that nobody does anything crazy to upset the apple cart, so to speak. Thank you for sharing that. And so Alex, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? Well, you know, it's allowed me to no longer have a W-2 job, which is important to me and my young family. I've got two little ones at home. Gives me a little bit more flexibility. That's number one. And then number two, it's really giving me a future with building wealth. Our W-2 jobs might have been to pay bills and, and maybe have some fun with and those kind of things. But real estate investing is more about building that long-term wealth that you have a set of property or properties that you can turn into anything you want. And I don't think there's a whole other assets out there that allow you to do that. And what is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? I wish I, I, wish I knew that, well, I knew that all tenants weren't going to be the same, but I wish I knew really more of the average length of tenancy for tenants in that area because every area is different you know suburbs maybe stay there a little bit longer urban core maybe less but really understanding that more so you can kind of budget for vacancies better and really the time it takes to fill vacancies i wish i would have known that before i started and what is one thing that sets the successful people apart in the real estate investing business The number one thing is, I know it's cliche, but it's working really hard with persistence. You don't have to work physically hard with your arms and legs, but putting in extra time, removing distractions on social media or NFL.com or whatever it is you're looking at and focusing in on why are you working a little bit harder in real estate? And the answer is because you want to build long-term wealth for you and your family. And so you got to have that in, in your head. Thank you. And is there any tools or techniques that you've used to improve the efficiency of your life or your business? There is on, of course, you know, for some reason, people ask me, you know, well, how do I get on your MLS list or whatever, which is fine. You can be on that, but you can also just use Zillow and they have features built in, you know, the save feature, the favorites feature, all those kind of things. Zillow actually has a lot of tools available to you that the MLS doesn't have. And LoopNet on the commercial side also has those same features built into it. And that allows you to watch the market much more closely than you can, you know, get with a broker even. Oh, great tip. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And Alex, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and your company, where can they go? 
The best way to get a hold of me really is LinkedIn. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Alex Olson. And you can also search for, well, you'll find me there, but you'll recognize me because I'm with Clemens Real Estate in Kansas City. Uh, And then you can also email me at alex at clemensrealestate.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing everything on the show today. We really appreciate it, Alex. No problem. Have a great day. You too. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.